If you've watched enough science fiction, you're familiar with the trope of space madness, where someone has been out in space for too long, and they've gone crazy, generally taking it all out on their other astronaut crewmates. But of course, the reality of long term adventure and exploration in space will have a different impact on the human brain than them just turning into psychos in space. So I had a chance to talk with Logan Smith, who is a clinical psychology doctoral student at Oklahoma State University. And he just recently did a meta study looking at all of the mental state of various space exploration journeys that have happened so far and tried to make some recommendations for longer term flights, say going to Mars and back what impact will flying to Mars have on the human mind? And what can what can we do to make sure that everybody on board has the coolest, calmest, safest experience possible, that they can all return back to Earth as friends, having to gone through that incredible adventure. So here's the interview with Logan. Whenever I think about space psychology, I think about space madness, like specifically like the Ren and Stimpy cartoon. <laughs> how, how, how on track am I? You know, I mean, so we haven't had that happen yet. And, um, you know, I don't foresee it happening in the near future, mostly because our recruitment and our selection procedures for the astronaut class is so restrictive, so careful. Um, yeah. But I, I think that it's not a matter of if that will happen, but when that will happen. We will eventually have some sort of psychotic episode in space. Um, right. It's only a matter of time. Um, my hope is that it's centuries out. But, if, right. you know, um, the population of people living and working in space explodes to the later half of the century the way that I think it will. It might be decades away from the first episode. And our hope is if that happens, we have the right systems in place to make sure that uh, collateral damage is contained and that we could stabilize right. that person before they hurt themselves or someone else. I mean, every chance I've had a chance to talk to an astronaut you get a sense of why this person was chosen as an astronaut. Not only do they have an incredible record, they're a test pilot, nerves of steel, they have multiple advanced degrees and other specialties, but they are, they seem stable and are incredible team players. And you feel uplifted and sort of surrounded by an aura of leadership, just, just hanging out with them. So do you think that, that this idea that eventually space will be hard on the psychology is, is like, the current crop of astronauts are probably fine. But it's when we have many, many more people going to space, that we're going to see sort of people who aren't necessarily as ready mentally to handle the rigors of the of the journey. Maybe I, I don't know. It's hard to say because I could definitely say that our current crop of astronauts are well suited for the mission profiles at hand. So trips trips to um, low low Earth orbit for weeks to months, uh, trips to lunar orbit or the surface of the moon for weeks to months. But I have I don't know if the current profile that we're selecting for is the ideal profile for a trip to Mars. Um, maybe maybe it is because you're right they they exude confidence and leadership and stability but um 
will that translate over to the ideal psychological profile for being uh, so far from home that Earth isn't even this blue marble? It's barely even a dot. Uh, you can't even see it most of the time, knowing that there is no rescue, there is no um, quick quick return home. I, I have a feeling that most astronauts right now would be capable of doing well there, but it's hard to know until we try. What is the closest analogy we have to a long duration space flight? I think of two two things. There's Antarctic research, uh, and we have a lot of data from Antarctic research. Uh, people are there all the time. And the second analogy I would think of is submarine crews. Submarine crews, uh, when they have to be submerged for weeks or months on end, uh, the control of information, the flow of, of, of information between them and their families are is very tightly watched and monitored and delayed at times. I think those are probably our two best analogies. And um, if those analogies are indicative of anything, it's that it's hard on the psychology of the people. We don't have this sort of space madness that we, we like to think about from fiction, but we do have depression, anxiety, substance use, um, loneliness, um, things of, of, of that, that nature. I mean, when you think about exploration that was done over the last few hundred years, when you think about, say, Magellan taking his crew around the Earth, uh, he didn't survive the journey, but they were they had very real things to be afraid of. I mean, many of them didn't survive the journey. And you think about some of the other exploration to the South Pole, North Pole, all these places, they knew that their lives were very likely on the line in a way that I don't think submarine operators or people in Antarctica are sort of expecting. So does, does the... I don't know, the understanding of your own mortality, the expectation that you might not survive this journey, does that have play an impact in what happens to their minds compared to just the loneliness and the isolation and so on, do you think? I think it does. One of the interesting things that we have happening with Antarctic research or submarine crews is that you have a weird juxtaposition of this is not normal. You're in a hostile environment. Um, you, you know that your mortality is threatened. But at the end of the day, you also have a warm bunk and hot showers and internet access and you can watch the office and all of these strange things and it's hard for your mind to stay in the mindset of i'm in a hostile environment i have to be um like on edge i have to be ready and then at the same time you can turn on your xbox and you can play some call of duty and it, it's weird it, it, it's hard for your brain to do that switch back and forth we're probably going to see that with astronauts too, because we're trying to minimize stress by giving them as many creature comforts as possible, which is important. But it's also going to create some weird dichotomies that are that are going on. So explain the research that you did. So um, the field of space psychology is very much in its infancy in the sense that there is research being done, um, more so by the Russians than by the hmm. Americans, but uh, America is catching up now too. It just seems like the Russians with their uh, space program took mental health more seriously quicker. Uh, but so the field is in its infancy. There's research being done, but most private investigators uh, or just researchers or general citizens don't have access to that data. So what I did was a scoping 
review where I take all of the indexed, all of the searchable literature on space psychology, space mental health, anything like that, and just tried to summarize it. Um, and it turned into a gargantuan paper. Uh, I, I, you know, I didn't know what to expect going in. I thought, you know, 10 pages, 12 pages, that's pretty respectable for a journal article. Uh, I think it's pushing over 50. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, luckily, the um, scholars at ACTA Astronautica were gracious enough to review it and publish it. And uh, the, the idea here is I, I tried to synthesize everything that we know about the mental health of a spaceflight environment when it comes to the stressors or how you cope with the stressors, incidences of mental illness, treatments, everything. And my hope is that people can then use this to do a lot of targeted research with now a theoretical basis. So kind of like a one-stop shop, if you're curious about anything about space mental health, check out the study, and then from, yep. from there, do whatever else you think is missing or is necessary or whatever. Yeah, I thought it was a very readable study. I really enjoyed it. Um, so then, like, you know, I'm sort of thinking about, I guess, one other analogy that I think about a lot and I use when I'm just sort of describing the situation to people is this TV show Alone. I don't know if you've ever seen this. No. They, they put a bunch of survivor-minded people on Vancouver Island and have them survive for several months alone. And they don't have all of these interactive games the way they do with Survivor, where they're interacting with each other. They are by themselves. And no matter how tough and mentally strong they seem to be going to this, and these people are all experts. They all know how to make fire from scratch. They all know how to set traps and all of that. They all go, I wouldn't say crazy, but the the emotional state of being isolated is overwhelming to them. Every single one of them. I've, I've never seen a person get through this out the other side, four months alone on Vancouver Island, or however many months it is, and go, it was fine. You know, by the end, they're all crying and they just want to see their families. Right. Um, is that closer to the kind of isolation that we could be looking at with a very small crew? I think about a couple of people going to Mars. Is it more like that? It could be. And earlier mission profiles for um, going to Mars were these tiny, tiny crews. I forget the name of the landing system, but I remember looking at the blueprints for one that Lockheed Martin had made. And it was a beautiful looking landing system, but it was a, for a crew of like three or four people to spend eight to 12 months on Mars. And that's maybe not sustainable. Uh, that's maybe not that 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 big of a deal. And what, what a listener might think is, well, aren't we doing that at the space station? You know, aren't there at times isn't the space station only have a crew of two, three or four? Uh, the, the space station that China launched has a crew of two or three. Uh, but the difference is there's no real substantial communication delay when you are in in um, low lower Earth orbit, we're talking fractions of a second. When you're at Mars, the communication delay is upwards of 15 minutes. If we're talking there and back, at times it could be as late as long as half an hour. You can't have a conversation uh, with that. You you could you could maybe do some uh, emailing back and forth or some weird voice voice messages back and forth, but 
at that point, your social interaction is going to be just the people who you are there with. A crew of three or four is going to give you a sense of social stagnancy after a, after a while. You're just going to sort of get tired of the people that you're around. Um, and that becomes especially exaggerated if you have an interpersonal conflict with them, right? So mm -hmm. what if you just grow to hate the like other other the guy on on your crew now that that capsule feels especially small so um when i think about mission profiles that have just two three or four people going to mars the risk goes up um but when you think about like the starship system where they're wanting to send dozens of of, of folks to mars well, that now becomes a little bit more manageable as far as um, loneliness goes and social isolation. You're still gonna miss your family uh, if you're if you're married and your spouse is back at home. You're gonna be missing your spouse, but you're at least gonna have some type of social uh, change of scenery when you have over a dozen people to be talking with. So, what kind of treatment or not even treatment necessarily, but just kind of what ongoing monitoring do you think would be required for a spaceship crew? So um, there's always, I think, going to be mandatory mental health check-ins. Uh, these are as simple as filling out questionnaires. Uh, we use that and we use those in the mental health field all the time. So I have uh, clients that I see for therapy on a regular basis, and I have them every couple of weeks filling out checklists. Checklists are good of just tracking symptom trajectory overall. So am I noticing your anxiety goes up at certain points in the year your, or your symptoms of depression are going up? Uh, but checklists are falsifiable, of course. Um, there's always ways of uh, concealing what what you're what you're feeling. Um, some of the research that I do uh, in in my my lab is looking at concealed thinking, so concealed suicidal ideation, concealed depression, and I can imagine some concealed monitoring of thinking patterns going on. So that's watching right. your eye tracking. That's watching uh, your heart rate. That's watching your skin uh, conductivity. Things like, like, like that. It feels like an invasion of privacy for the average person. But I think that for most people who are in the military, they would know that's not really that far of a departure from how things usually are. And folks in the astronaut corps would definitely expect to have some level of passive monitoring happening. And then I would say another thing that we would want is regular touch points with a therapist of some some sort. Uh, back on Earth or on the mission with you, although that's complicated. Uh, just check-ins, touch points, talking with them so that we can maybe be picking up on things that are beginning before they spiral. Um, and, and, you know, let's move into the spiral side. So if there is a crisis and the astronauts are far away from, from Earth, what can be done to help them? So our gold standard when you're in um, low Earth orbit would be medication usage and therapy. So uh, talking with the person, coming up with a treatment plan based on what's going on, what the complaint is, what the symptoms are, using medic uh, using some type of medicine. The majority of astronauts use some type of medicine at some point when they're in space. Usually it's for sleep or stomach stomach pain or something like like that but uh can imagine some stress you know you want to you want to take take the like edge off of uh, stress uh and and um low low earth orbit are 
sort of last resort option. If someone is spiraling, as you would put it, and there's no, they're not responding to treatment would be restraint and emergency returned to earth. We haven't had to do that. That would be very expensive, uh, but that is an option. When you're on Mars, there is no emergency mm -hmm. return to Earth. We would probably have to make sure they were somewhere that they wouldn't be a danger to themselves or others and try to get them stable. Most mental health crises come in waves. So if you can ride out the peak of that wave until right. a, a kind of a lower point, that's where you can make progress. Uh, but the real trick is just catching the waves before they even start. And so if you, I mean, if you've got a sense that somebody is, as we said before, starting to spiral, starting to, to decline in their condition, and you, you mentioned you've got medication, but in many cases, you still have that big delay. So being able to have some kind of talk therapy is really tricky. Do you see the other astronauts on board being trained to some level to be able to, to conduct some of that? That's that's where we get into some really differing opinions. Um, some mm. so, some people would say that yes, we should have some bare minimum level of training that they can all do. Uh, others would say that they should all be trained. Sort of this idea that uh, how amazing would it be if every uh, astronaut was a medical doctor too, right? And if, if 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 that's the case, then if someone has a broken bone or they contract an illness somehow. Everyone can respond, even if your doctor's sick. Uh, but the problem is when it comes to mental health is it's different from medical treatments. You have this weird conflict of interest that goes on to where it changes relationships with people once you start treating their um, mental health. You can't look at just objective things like this bone, your tibia, needs needs to be Re, uh, set properly. We're looking at things like mental processes where we can't see them going on. My advice has always been that every astronaut should have some training. And right now, every astronaut does have some, some training. Your training should focus on two things. One, how to know your own warning signs and how to inter intervene on your own self. So communicate to your commander if you need just a few extra hours to, you know, recharge or to talk with your family back at home or to exercise or whatever. At the same time, you should also have some training of how to not make it worse. It would uh, it would surprise you how often people make things worse for someone that is in a mental health crisis. So um I've heard horror stories of people who are going to the emergency room because of a suicide attempt. And one of the nurses or doctors there telling them how, how selfish they are for taking up mm. a hospital bed when there's other people with real problems out there. That's an example of making things worse. So we want to make sure that at least no one is making things worse for the person who is in crisis. Yeah, and it is really tricky to be around somebody who's going through some kind of mental health crisis and to both assist them, but to also be able to sort of maintain some level of impartiality and also support at the same time. Have you looked at all into private astronauts? I mean, we've had a few private astronauts fly to the International Space Station. There's this Dear Moon mission. I don't know if you've heard about this, yes. eight people flying to the moon and back. This feels like the perfect opportunity to find out what it might be like to be sending regular people 
to farther destinations. It, it, it does in a way. And I'm very um, interested in if there's any type of research going on with them. I've been trying to find ways to contact mission uh, planners for that, to ask, like, can y'all include some questionnaires or some, you know, monitoring of data? That'd be really, really great. Um, I agree. This is going to be a really good test bed of when we're taking just average people. I think of um, Tim uh, Dodd, the uh, yeah. everyday astronaut. I love him. He's a great guy. Uh, and he's going to be going on that mission. I think Tim's a great guy. I think Tim also knows he is an average person. He is not an, an, like uh, a test pilot. He's not like a hardened soldier. He's an average person. So how he responds would be a good indication of how the average person. But the problem is that's a short mission. That's a mission of just days. So even the average person can put up with something for an average amount of time. But what happens if the dear moon was dear Venus and they were doing a flyby <laughs> yeah. of Venus and it was going to take seven months? What would happen then? That's what I would be very interested in. Yeah. And I don't know if we're going to be able to tell until we try. And, but I wonder yeah. if if you can get a sense even of some gap, like talking to the people on the Inspiration4 mission that's been a week in space around the Earth and other private astronauts who've been up to the International Space Station because they don't have this, you know, they paid to go in some cases or were, were you know, their trip was paid for as opposed to an astronaut that had been selected. And that, that mental toughness is one of those that are required. Is I want to go back to this idea of mental toughness. Can can a person, the kind of person who can withstand being a test pilot, can that cause downsides to them over long periods of time interacting with other people in something that's a little bit, I guess, less acute and more just ongoing? It, it absolutely could. We we could not take just every test pilot and make them an astronaut because some test pilots from what I've seen, just maybe aren't the most um, interpersonal of people, right? So very, very tough, uh, but maybe not the most uh, perceptive of others' thoughts, feelings, emotions, etc. Um, it seems like the current astronaut core is pretty good at being interpersonal too. And that's the majority of the job when you're, when you're selected as an astronaut. Your majority of your job is on Earth, and it's meeting people and it's going mm -hmm. places and representing nasa representing astronauts so they're very very good at that but once we get this high demand for more and more astronauts up there we may no longer have the luxury of letting someone be our ambassador on earth for 12 to 18 months before putting them up there and we could have a problem where we have the tough people that aren't uh, the most interpersonal people one of the problems that we can have is if there's too many leaders and not enough followers. So um, I would say that if we take any astronaut and we put them anywhere else on Earth, whether it's at a grocery store or whether it's at a doctor's office or university, they would come out leading that little area. So naturally born leaders, right? Um, yeah, 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 totally. I think of myself as a pretty leadership oriented person. And I think I would naturally follow the lead of any astronaut. Um, but if everyone is like that, then we can get some butting of heads that happen. And NASA does a great job of training that out of people, helping them understand who has what role. Uh, but again, just 
given enough time, we're going to start running into problems. And we're going to find, I think, that grit isn't the only thing that's that's important. Grit might end up sliding down the scale of importance once spaceflight becomes more regular. When Dear Moon launched, they got more than a million applications from around the world. There was a plan that was hoping to send regular people to Mars and broadcast the entire experience. I think that's uh, gone bankrupt. <laughs> um, but I think for a lot of people, when they think about going to Mars and live on Mars, they have these really romantic notions about what that whole adventure is going to be like. Based on your research, what do you think a typical person's human psychology would do in in going to Mars at sort of this level of lack of infrastructure and technology today? It's going to be a struggle. I think about how um, SpaceX has these shirts that say colonize Mars. I think that they also need shirts to say like Mars will suck because it's <laughs> it's going to it's going to really suck at first. Um, there's yeah. going to be no real creature comforts. Um, there's going to be long days working. Uh, Elon Musk is very upfront about this. He's very upfront about whenever you hear him talking that it's going to be tough. It's going to be tough. I think that the average person's mental health is going to really struggle at Mars after a while. You're going to realize that the excitement has worn off. Um, and now your job is just to uh, remote control a rover and be digging trenches or uh, be watching over plants and a greenhouse. But you have to wear a suit the entire time so you can't even enjoy the fresh air or the scent of the plants. And it's going to really get taxing after, after a while. Whenever I have a client in therapy who is struggling with depression, uh, one of the biggest pieces of advice that I can give them is to take a walk, to go outside and take a walk, 15 minutes, half hour, go for it. Um, and it does wonders for people. It doesn't cure depression, but I can take it from an eight to a five. Uh, but I can't tell you to go go for a walk on Mars. Every EVA has to be scheduled and rigorously yeah. uh, um, decided upon. I think people are going to really struggle with it. Um, so I think that if we're imagining when the first mental health crises in space are, the, the real major ones, it would be, okay, when are we going to have the first 100 civilians on Mars. Whenever that is, I would guess that in the first year, we'll have five to 10 instances of someone needing actual help. Um, doesn't mean that they're trying to kill anyone, doesn't mean that they're trying to rip a hole in the airlock, but they're going to need actual help, medication, therapy, whatever. Even in Antarctica, you can walk outside and go for a walk in the snow. Yes. I mean, hopefully you can take some safety precautions, but you can step outside and you can breathe the air and the cosmic radiation isn't going to be beating down on you and potentially giving you cancer. It's, uh, we've had a really rough winter here. In fact, this is the second time we tried to do this, this interview because my the big snowfall took out my, my internet before. And so we've got like enough snow around the house right now that I can't go anywhere easily. And I didn't buy skis. And I'm really irritated. <laughs> and it's you could feel it. You just feel like this like cabin fever that that you want to be able to get out and, and yet 
here I know that if I just, you know, either I just put on my snow boots and tough it out or wait a couple of weeks, the rain will return and everything will be fine again. But yeah, I, ca I can't imagine you like you will never like if you're planning to live on Mars, probably in your lifetime, you will never be able to go for a walk outside and just breathe the air right. and feel the wind on your skin. And another thing that I'm thinking about that I don't know if there's a term for this. If someone out there knows, please tell me. I've always wondered. But, you know, right now, you and I are in different areas of the world. But when I tap my feet on the ground, I know that we're touching the same ground. We're on the same mm -hmm. planet. And it's this sort of sense that, like, I know that I'm connected to everyone else. That even if my family is many states away, we're still on the same planet. We're still on the same ground. That's not going to be the case on Mars. You're going to put your feet down on the ground and know this is a dead planet. No one else is here. Um, everyone that I've ever known or cared about or whatever is far away. And it's just going to be a strange feeling. I don't know if we even can imagine what will happen. I remember when I was a kid, I heard about how during the Renaissance age, they thought that if mankind was able to go faster than 60 miles an hour, they would just die because, you know, we, we like haven't, we haven't done it before. And I'm not making a claim as big as that, but I truly don't know what will happen hmm. to the human brain when we're on a different planet. When Earth is gone, we're on a different planet. When that realization kind of clicks in, what would that do to a person? I have no idea. So and this may be a question you've never had before, but I think about some of the experiences that astronauts have had that are unlike anything that most of us have here on Earth. And a good example, of this is called the overview effect. Many astronauts experience this about like being over Earth and seeing the entire planet without borders and so on. And it brought William Shatner to tears coming back to Earth. Are there positive states that astronauts can get into that maybe we don't have access to as people stuck on Earth? And will that have an impact, do you think? Absolutely. So, you know, stress, we talk about stress as a very negative thing, but uh, positive events can be like stressful too. So, you know, <laughs> um, getting married is a stressful experience. Everything about yeah. that is stressful. Um, graduating college, getting a job, stressful things. Astronauts experience a positive stress unlike anything that we can imagine. The, over, the overview effect is exactly what you talked about. Uh, one of the most interesting things is one of the, the more common side effects of the overview effect is changes in religious perceptives or, or uh, perspectives or spirituality. So a lot of people have some type of spiritual change that comes with this. Um, yeah. I think there's going to be a lot of um, intrapersonal growth that happens as a result of, of like going, going to Mars. Um, what you think about, nationalities and borders and what matters and the ecology and all of that's going to get vastly different. Um, it seems like most astronauts are for the better having, having gone up to space, not all of them, but most of them. And I think that the same will be true for those who go to Mars to a greater ex extent. Probably our best example would be to look at the Apollo astronauts and their experiences viewing earth rising up from behind the moon, etc. Yeah, 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 it's interesting, like that would be working almost on the other side that, that 
while they're feeling their isolation at the same time, they're feeling this heightened spirituality or connectedness to each other that they're sharing this experience that no other human being can experience. You would expect that would also bring them together until they get bored of it, but you know, until it fades into the background, like any, you know, hedonic adaptation. You know, I, I remember reading in the expanse books, uh, they talk about euphoria and how it can set in, uh, and in, in the expanse, it's a great fiction series. If you were out on a, on an EVA, and you looked up at the stars for too long, you could get hit by euphoria and do something stupid, kind of leave leave the station. And we actually almost had something like that happen several decades ago. Uh, I believe it was on one of the uh, Soviet missions. A, a, a crew member became so overcome with euphoria wow. that he put on his spacesuit and began to leave the capsule on an unplanned walk. And he forgot to tether himself. And uh, luckily, one of his crew members grabbed his him and pulled him back in before the unthinkable could happen. I'm, I'm, I'm blanking on the exact mission profile, yeah. but that happens. And um, I'm sure he can laugh about it now. But if that crew member had seen him and grabbed him, our our, our safety protocols would have changed. And our experience of the dangers of euphoria would have been altered too. And I think that it's a matter of time before something like that happens on Mars. And, you know, suddenly we get OSHA on Mars, who's, you know, regulating how everyone does every everything. Because euphoria can be dangerous too. That's really interesting. Yeah, it's like there's one rule, stay tethered. <laughs> and yet, this, you know... He was he was going to go for a walk out in space, taking a peek, and, you know. Uh, just yeah, <laughs> just yeah. That's that's amazing. Wow. Um, now, when I watch science fiction, uh, I have to kind of grit through the bad science, the bad orbital mechanics, space exploration, astrophysics, so on. Um, what what do people get wrong, and and who gets it right when you think about about space psychology? So a lot of the things that gets wrong about this is, um, first of all, the the idea that the natural progression of psychotic tendencies or a psychotic episode is to try to murder everyone around you. <laughs> right, the space <laughs> madness, space yeah. odyssey, things like this. Um, that uh, this is not just um, restricted to space fiction. Fiction on Earth is the same way. We view people that have schizophrenia or psychotic tendencies as being naturally dangerous. Uh, and that the, the truth is, is, is far, far from it. So that's one. Um, generally speaking, if you're going to have a psychotic episode in space, you're probably just not going to be that helpful to be a crew member during the episode. So going to be erratic, going to be talking weird. You're going to be not helpful at all. And the way to deal with it is to tell you to just Go to your quarters, and you'll probably go, and then wait it out. Uh, so mm -hmm. that's 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 one of the main main things. I think an, another another thing that we see get wrong. I can't think of the exact examples I've seen of this, but where someone becomes so uh, home homesick of Earth that they try to like fly the rocket back on the, the, their own, try try to abort the mission early to return home soon. 
I don't think anyone would ever attempt that. I think most people would understand that they don't have a grasp on orbital mechanics enough to be able to do that. Um, the ones that get it right, I can't think of a lot that actually get it right. And <laughs> That's I think my experience too. <laughs> I, I think it's more because they just stay away from it. Like they don't yeah. talk about it. The only time we hear space mental health get brought up is if they're going to show us a crazy example, right? Someone losing their mind, someone attempting suicide, but someone just getting a little bit depressed. Um, I don't know if we see if we see a lot of of, of that. Yeah, yeah, of them getting a little depressed, getting a little irritated by their crewmates, uh, a little sullen, and that leading to more fights and them returning from their mission, not wanting to hang out anymore. Bingo! Like that—that's that's probably yeah. the worst that, yeah. that that it would it would it would be. Yeah, yeah, and then maybe someone ending up with it with alcoholism. Yeah, I remember yeah. I was I was watching this video and it was. Um, some Soviet, uh, not Soviet, I shouldn't say Soviet anymore. There were some Russian um, guys, they were cosmonauts and they were in the rocket preparing to launch and they were just talking amongst themselves and they were so sick of it. They were so, this this is like their like fourth or fifth mission and they were just so tired of it. And they were saying how there's, you know, they always have to do another one and it's terrible. And I was thinking that's probably a pretty good reaction. The novelty is going to wear off. When you look at uh, those small capsules that the Russians use, it's not enjoyable. It's you're crammed in yeah. there and eventually you're going to just be sick of it. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Well, Logan, it's been a real pleasure to talk with you. If people want to keep track of your research, what's the best way to do that? I would say a really, really great way of doing it is just looking for my um, Google Scholar page. Uh, mm -hmm. You can just, you can follow that, get alerts whenever I have anything published. I've got a couple of manuscripts that are pending at the moment. One of them that's looking at automated um, therapy for hmm. space flight. So that one is cool. And another one looking at specific recommendations for design of space habitats and capsules based on mental health principles. So just look for Logan M. Smith on Google Scholar. Follow that uh, profile to see all the latest ones. All right, fantastic. And if someone does experience a mental health crisis in space, uh, let me let me know uh, how how we're able to resolve it. Yes, and if if anyone listening experiences a crisis on on the ground, just call nine eight eight, and that's our new mental health crisis hotline number. It's free of charge nine eight eight, and you'll be patched in with someone who can help you right away. Fantastic. Don't even need to go to space. No, that's that's great. right. All right. Well, thanks, Logan. Great to talk to you. You too. Thank you. You can also get even more space news in my weekly email newsletter. I send it out every Friday to more than 55,000 people. I write every word. There are no ads and it's absolutely free. Subscribe at universetoday.com newsletter. You can also subscribe to the Universe Today podcast. There you can find an audio version of all of our news, interviews, and Q&As, as well as exclusive content. Subscribe at universetoday.com podcast or search for Universe Today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. A huge thanks to everyone who supports us on Patreon and helps us stay independent. Thanks to all the interplanetary researchers, the interstellar adventurers, and the galaxy wanderers. And a special thanks to Josh Schultz and Andrew M. Gross who support us at the Master of the Universe level. All your support means the universe.